Welcome back, my friends, to Tales from a Cult Insider. This is your host, former unwilling cultist Jared Garrett. I'm here to tell you these stories, and thanks for coming back. Before we get into our quick recap, I want to remind you that you can support this podcast in a multitude of ways. The most important thing you could possibly do is review it and talk about this podcast with your friends. Uh, you know, in addition to that, you could even click on the support link in the description of this podcast in your podcast player and give me some cash or, you know, I guess it's electronic cash. I don't believe it takes Bitcoin, which is fine, fine, fine. Uh, just looking to, you know, help pay some bills. You know what I'm saying? In any case, uh, but really the best thing is to tell your friends, leave some reviews, uh, and talk it up, man. Because word of mouth is by far the best and most effective way to spread the word about something kind of interesting and cool like this. So a quick recap, as you know, probably, I was born and raised in a cult, man. A real-life commune and cult. I was raised basically like an orphan. This thing started out in the 60s as an offshoot of Scientology. It was called the Process Church of the Final Judgment. For a little while, it was a fairly infamous cult in the UK and later the USA. When I was born, the cult broke apart into a group of people dedicated to the original process, sort of, and to those who made a new culty commune called the Foundation Faith of the Millennium. That, was, that would be Millennium, yeah. Which evolved over the years and finally morphed into, you guessed it, Best Friends Animal Society. They're not a cult. But I'm here to tell you about being a kid in this somewhat strange, secretive, religious commune. They're not a cult. I say it again. I'm not here to tear them down or do any kind of expose. So y'all can just chill out over there at Best Friends Animal Society. I think you're great and I have a lot of respect for you. Now, I'm also here as a quick caveat because there's still a little bit of anger to work through and certainly a lot of voice silencing and erasing to work through. Spent my childhood being overlooked. And uh, now not only are we all overlooked for the most part, although there's a fun development recently, um, we are being actively erased from existence by those folks, which is funny for them to be doing because they never talk about where we came from. But every so often, you know, I mean, not every so often, but fairly regularly, people who I grew up with still work with the best friends. Uh, and, and I would imagine the people they work with you know, or t tend to be privy to their bat, their past, I think. But I don't know if they're like kind of mandated or ordered to not really get into the deep, dark secrets of, all, of it all. But one of the guys I grew up with, Bart, rad guy, a guy I respect and like, and I really uh, honor his service that he, that he gave to this country. He was in the Marine Corps for, I think, 20 to 25 years. Good man. Uh, he's currently running for Kanab City Council after moving back to Kanab to work with best friends and take over some operations, some major operations for them. Uh, he's been back for three or four years and now he's running for Kanab City Council. Go for it, buddy. Uh, I support you. And if I lived there, I'd probably vote for you. Um, in any case, but I still have a bit of anger to work through. And so these episodes are helpful for me to work kind of through stuff. Um, there's still stuff that hurts, though it doesn't hurt too much anymore by the grace of God. And lastly, as preamble, your questions will always be answered. Let's just jump right into today's uh, episode, though. Um, I'll point out again, jared at jaredgarrett.com. Available for answering questions, for speaking engagements, for inspirational uh, discussions and all that stuff. And uh, for fan mail. Uh, and hopefully not hate mail, guys. Don't give me hate mail. That would be rude. Anyway, so today... Uh, is actually, it's a cult insider story, but it's actually a post-cult 
story. It's post-cult story number one, titled Painfully Shy. Now, I'm not going to give you the, ex the, the, the story or the rundown of me getting out of the cult, of how I became, came to be no longer in it. That is going to be the, one of the more final episodes of this season, which is the last season for this show. Um, no, I'm just going to tell you a little bit about me upon my departure from the cult and, uh, and my landing where I did. So let's just jump right in. As you've probably gleaned, if you've listened to the rest of these episodes, you know, I was a generally okay, normal guy with some issues, uh, certainly isolationist issues on my own. You know, I, I didn't trust people for obvious reasons. Um, I did trust some of the kids, but not all of them, because some of those kids really were tattletale, narc, you know, um, snitches get stitches, yo, type people. Uh, although I never gave anybody stitches. I never gave any cause to need stitches either. Let me just point that out as well. Uh, I just had trust issues, and I also just didn't know how to open up. I didn't know how to be a friend, didn't know how to be a son, didn't know how to be a brother. Uh, I just didn't really know how to be anything but my kind of extremely awkward self. Um, if you recall, I talked about when I moved to Dallas, I said, how? As if I were an indigenous person from North America, from the old uh, country western movies. Yeah, no, um, that's very awkward. In any case, that was me at the age of 17 when I was out and wound up in Kanab, Utah for my senior year of high school, my one year of public high school. And I also had no middle school and public school either, as you know from another episode. I, um, yeah, I was, I wouldn't say I was a mess, but I was definitely not, I didn't have my feet under me emotionally, um, mentally, and spiritually. Now, I, I, I had a lot of attitude, and I was delighted to not be in the cult anymore. Boy, just over the moon. And so that had a, that carried me a long way until I did get my feet under me. But some other things carried me a long way, and that would be my friends. Um, and I dedicated my latest novel that uh, came out in May to them, uh, to I think 12 of them, I think it was, at last count. Uh, they caught me, brought me in to their fold, and gave me a comfortable and safe space. Not only that, a fun space, a place where I could play D&D and shadow run and board games and uh, just hang out and maybe have some bonfires and listen to great music at a really loud volume. I love them. I am grateful for them. And here's a story about how their assistance helped me break out of a shell. So picture this, Jared has just escaped from this cult. He's been out for a week when he starts going to school. So I arrived in Kanab the day, the very day that school started for my senior year. That would be August 20-ish, I think it was, um, of 1991. Oh, now you know kind of how old I am. Arr, nurse. I've already said I'm a 45-year-old man. So 1991, August, I landed there and I had a week I just took the week. My father, who I, I lived on his floor of this living room, living room, and that's not because they didn't want me. It was because they had no other space for me. It was a very small house. Um, and Emma was used to having her own room, and as well she should be. I, I didn't want to evict her from her room anyway. So I, I, I rolled out a futon every night and slept on the floor of the living room. It was a perfectly comfortable way to sleep. I spent my first week doing that, kind of chilling out around the house. 
uh, got enrolled in school. Um, my dad took me in. I was calling him um, Bruce at the time because that's what he went by. Um, or just, hey, yeah, because uh, I was kind of awkward and didn't know what to call him. Uh, we, we'd interacted. Yes, we had, but I'd called him Enoch and God bless you and stuff like that. So where, how do you, where do you go from there, right? But And that just really informed much of the way I handled the world around me. Got enrolled in classes, registered up and stuff like that. And then um, hung out on the porch of the uh, of his house or did some work around the house for him, you know, cutting weeds and stuff like that, cutting grass, which was minimal there, um, and doing some reading and doing maybe even a little bit of hiking, if I recall, which is great because that stuff's fun. Um, boy, I did a lot of hiking down there. What a beautiful place to land on and get your feet under you. You know, if if you need to go find yourself, if you need to take some time and find yourself after a difficult experience, I recommend Southern Utah. Find a, a relatively low-cost place to live and go hiking on the daily. You're going to find yourself, my friends. Don't get lost. Don't get eaten by vultures. If you stay alive, which you really have a good chance of, you're going to find yourself there like I did. So I went to school my first day, uh, rode my bike down there. I'd gotten my bike. No, I think I had to get a ride there because my bike was still in transit to me from Dallas. Um, and uh, you know, I went to school. I went to classes. My first class was weight training with, uh, as run by the football coach of the Kanab Cowboys. Kanab Cowboys being, you know, that shirt that's on, I think Napoleon wears that shirt in Napoleon Dynamite. Uh, or somebody else does probably. Anyway, it's it's uh, that's real. That's their real mascot down at Kanab. Uh, and Arlen Haven was the name of the man who ran the weight training class, who was the head coach. And the Kanab football stadium, the Kanab High School football stadium, is now named after him because he was a good, good man and a very good coach and led the team to victory and success and nurtured a lot of young men into into really being a responsible men to, to this very day. So... Uh, that was my first class. I was already pretty strong for a variety of reasons, which I've talked about. You know, I used to, I helped build Best Friends V1 with my other peers, uh, with a lot of adults uh, telling us what to do. We got strong that way. I, I was, I mean, I was hauling around 40, 50 pound bags of dog food on each shoulder at the age of 15 and 16. So, you know, I mean, there's muscle there. Plus, I was also working out really regularly, punching my big heavy training bag, um, lifting as many weights as we I could get onto a barbell, which was limited. I, I think we could get about 115 pounds maxed out on our little barbell. And I was able to, you know, clean and jerk, whatever that's called, you know, where you throw it, push it up over your head. I was able to do that without much problem. So I got to the weight training class and was strong and relatively fit. And Coach Hafen was like, Jared, you're, you're a strong kid. And I'm like, oh, hey, thanks. It's the first time anybody noticed anything like that about me. Um, and uh, he said, man, I, I kind of wish that uh, you'd been here in time for for tryouts for football. And I'm like, oh, my gosh. In my head, I'm like, oh, my gosh, for real? That's like a fantasy dream come true. Some coach noticing how strong and fit you are and, you know, and expressing that kind of thing. I felt it. And this was just a natural thing for him, you know. Um, and, but it meant a lot to me. And so I want to thank Coach Hafen. Um, he's passed on to the other side, as far as I know. Um for that, that was really important to me. 
And and the the those young men on the football team, you know, they they were referred to as jocks, and boy, they could have some real struggles, like jocks tend to in smaller towns. But they were also really good dudes, you know. Um, they welcomed me in. They'd had their class going for a week, and they'd known each other their whole lives. But here was this newcomer with kind of longer hair, not a mullet though, kind of longer hair. And and I showed up and started lifting weights, and they showed me the how to use the weights at machines. They spotted me. They told me fun stories. A kid named Tyson Johnson became a really, uh, a, a, you know, a, a comrade. He he was just a really good, down-to-earth, salt-of-the-earth fellow. Um, and I appreciated that. I felt very comfortable around those guys. They knew what hard work was. They knew what camaraderie was. And I knew what one of those things were, uh, or one of those things was. So um, that was a nice place to start my, my uh, schooling. And uh, went to a couple more classes and then wound up in a lunch line to get some lunch because I hadn't brought lunch, which was kind of a dumb thing, honestly. Um, got some school lunch. From there on out, I tended to actually get split my, my eating between um, getting school lunch and getting bringing lunch from home. Uh, but most, I, I think after a little while, I ended up getting bringing lunch from home every day because we didn't really have a lot of money. I didn't have any money until a couple months in. But anyway, there I'm, I'm in a lunch line and I'm... I'm I'm brand new, you know, nobody knew who I was. And these kids are curious and a lot of them are outgoing. And so one turns to me and says, oh, you're, you're a new kid, huh? I'm like, and I said, yeah, I'm very shy. I really don't know how to treat and react and inter interact with these people. Uh, and this was a smaller person, if I recall. And this person said, uh, so what's your name? And I said, Ernie, Ernie Pendergast. <laughs> I don't know if I ever disabused that poor person of uh, my lie, um, but yeah, that was that was what I said, Ernie Pendergast. Um, and you know, later people would ask me what's your name, and I'd tell them the truth. But that was a really great way to start, Jared. Well done, there, Bucko. Um, that day, I don't remember what lunch was because how could I possibly remember that? But I had a tray of it, and I walked out of the uh, little line that went into the serving space and was looking where to sit. And I was about to head over to kind of an emptier table when the jocks, James Geiger, Tyson Johnson, um, several other guys, you know, waved me over and said, no, hey, and they made space and let me sit at their table. We had a good conversation. They asked me about where I'd come from. I said, you know, I'm one of those guys from that, those guys up there. They were called Best Friends Animal Sanctuary at the time, but they hadn't, they'd, they'd been there for some time, but hadn't really... Um, become as hugely, incredibly powerful as they are now uh, and fully established as they are now. And so they were still kind of looked on as outsiders, right? Which, I don't know, maybe they still are. Anyway, um, so I uh, told them who I was, uh, where I'd come from. That found, they found that fascinating. And so uh, I told them a little bit more of the story and lunch got over and that was that. Um, and I, I ended up sitting with those guys pretty much every, every day of that week. Um, and, but uh, after lunch that day, uh, I, I, I finished up, well, after our conversation, I went back to class. But the next day, I finished up earlier and just said, hey, I got I to gotta go do some stuff. I was feeling pretty overwhelmed by the size of the school, which had 300 and something people in it, which was huge for me. Okay, guys, just back off. You people who went to school with 2,000 other people, where your graduating class was literally 10 times mine. Mine was about 40-ish. Uh, so, you know, it's all relative, okay, friends? So um, I left lunch the second day and was able to kind of decompress uh, and pulled a notebook out of my backpack in my locker on, uh, on, on the, the west side of the building and um, sat down in kind of a quiet corner of a hallway, just sitting on the floor, 
with my notebook open, flipped it open, and kept working on a, on a story I was writing. That's right, I was writing a story back then, even then. And some kid who's like a year or two younger than me, maybe, I don't know, I was a senior, she might have been a freshman or a sophomore, comes up and kind of, just kind of drops down next to me, just unquestioningly outgoing, and asked, what you doing? Uh, in a very jaunty and kind, solicitous tone. And I'm like, uh, I'm just writing. Like, oh, what are you writing? So I told her I was writing a book. And she, she got fascinated by that. We chatted a little bit. And then it was time for, for class. That was Annie. Um, what was your last name? Was it Henderson? It's Hodges now. She's a great tattoo artist. Um, yeah, I forgot what your last name was back then. Sorry, Annie. You're great, though. Uh, and, and, and that was... Me being, you know, learning to somewhat interact with other people I'd never met, but also being fairly closed up and answering questions in single syllables. So congratulations on some semi-successful uh, uh, initial interactions there, Jared. I was painfully shy, though. I never initiated inter an interaction even once. When I was in class, I didn't talk to anybody on my shared table unless they talked to me first. I kept my eyes averted to them. I probably looked a little bit kind of, uh, I don't know, different to those guys, you know. Um, but then some things happened around school dances. And uh, so buckle up. This is a pretty cool thing that happened at school dances after a first wild, wild failure. So the wild failure was a dance one time after a, a football game, right? So th this is generally how dances worked. And I think well, many of you probably know this, that Often, after football games, there's a dance. Certainly, that's the case in small towns, or at least it was. I went to the dance because I was at a f the football game, and I'd made some friends by then who were kind of the more alternative types who listened to people like the Violent Femmes and Ministry and Nine Inch Nails and Metallica and Megadeth and alternative bands like, you know, Depeche Mode and uh, such like, and The Cure and The Smiths uh, with Funky Heritage, those guys, my, my friends. Uh, so I, I'd made friends with them. And um, for a variety, through a variety of ways. And so I went to the football game and hung out with them. They were mostly in the pep band. A couple of them actually played football uh, and had a great time with them. It was a lot of fun. It was a real party. It's, it makes sense to me that most pep bands are now called party bands. Um, and uh, wound up at the dance. So I want to mention real quick about how I was welcomed into this group of friends. I feel like Heavenly Father, yep, yep overtly religious. What are you going to do? I feel like he led some things to happen that were great for everybody and especially great for me. So when I got to Kanab, to one of my better friends in the cult, Tim, had already been there for some time. And he was renting an a little small apartment house thing. He, was, um, he had a job. Um, I forget what he was doing for his job. What was he doing for his job? I don't know, but he was making okay money. Was he working for Junction? He might have been working for... Anyway, I forget. Um, and he'd made some friends, and they were a gamer group. Um, and it may have been through Javin, uh, who had befriended Michael Mountain, a cult guy, who was running a Best Friends anim uh, Animal Sanctuaries thrift store down in Kanab. They just had a thrift store when there. It was kind of random and weird. Um, and... Javin thought that Michael was really cool, and he was for a while, but then he went crazy. Not Javin, Michael. Javin, if you went crazy, man, I don't know if you're hearing this, but you, I still like you if you're crazy, but I don't think you're too crazy. Anyway, uh, random. Um, so T Tim had interacted with these guys and become good friends with these guys, um, and they were, they were, you know, listening to the cooler music, in my opinion, and uh, 
and they played RPGs, D&D particularly, and, D- and Tim was the DM because that's something he just loves to do. Uh, and, and these guys were kind of a pre-made, pre-set group of friends with Tim at the center of it. And so when I land in Kanab, there's Tim. And he is just a generous, friendly man. Always has been. He's always been unhesitatingly, unfailingly loyal and kind. And I can be as effusive as I want to about this guy. I can't. I cannot express my admiration for him enough. He's been in the army for some 15, 20 years at this point. Beautiful wife, gorgeous couple of wonderful kids uh, with giant smiles. Um, it, but he was there, and I just had this natural end to this group. And so by the time this first football game rolled around, I'd interacted with these guys and hung out with them a little bit. And found, you know, kindred spirits in many ways. But they were also, in many ways, a little more gregarious than me. Uh, when they got together, they could really get loud and really crazy and a little nutsos. Um, and, and which was a little too much for me. But I still felt like I had a place there, even though it wasn't always the most comfortable of places. Most of them had girlfriends. I did not and wasn't looking for that at the time. Uh, because I had no idea how I would do that. Although girls, I mean girls, were certainly front of mind because how do you not have girls front of mind when you're a 17 year old young man who's never ever done anything other than have a four-year-long crush with a Scottish girl halfway around the world right so um yeah I wound up at the at the dance after the football game with my friends you know Byron and a couple of others and Tim often went to these even though he was a year or two out of high school uh, he still had a great time. Um, I think he was still just trying to have a good time in his life, and he always has been that way. He's uh, just been straightforward about it's time to have fun. Um, and I'm sitting on uh, a, one of the bleachers, and a girl comes up to me, and I recognize her. It's the girl who asked me what I was writing. It was Annie, and she said, do you want to dance? And um, guys, I kind of froze for just a – in my head, it was for about a year and a half. In reality, it was for like just a few seconds, and I said, oh – um, yeah, I don't really dance. Uh, why, guys? Why? I don't know. I still can't explain it. I don't, don't regret it. I mean, on some levels, I'm like, I should have danced because that would have been the polite and good and cool thing to do. But I don't regret it because my development was my development. And I am who I am today because of it. And I have the family that I have today because of all of that. And I would do nothing to um, possibly, you know harm my possibilities of having the family that I have today. It, it, nothing could be more perfect for me. Uh, and I am endlessly grateful for them. And so, yeah, there's no regrets. Because if I'd done anything differently, I wouldn't be who I am and where I am today. So there you go. Enough of that philosophizing. And guess what? Another girl came up to me, and it may have been Annie's friend, Lisa, uh, who I think was also Henderson. They're not sisters. Though. I don't think they were sisters. I don't understand. I don't remember. I'm sorry. And I, she asked me to dance, too, and I gave her the same answer. And I don't think so, I, or I don't really dance. And that happened at least two more times with other girls, who all of these girls are quite attractive, sweet and kind and outgoing and fun and pretty. Um, also large hair with perms, I think, is what you would call that stuff. And bangs, <laughs> oh bangs, it was 91. Um, and uh, I said no to all of them, turned them all down. And after each one, Byron and Chris and Chris, two Chris's, uh, and Spencer and uh, Tim was there. Tim would be like, what are you doing? They're coming to ask you? Um, I was a new guy. 
Everybody was interested in this new guy. I wasn't unpleasant to look upon, and I was generally pretty, and, and I was friendly enough when I, I could get to, get to talking. And so, sure, I understand it. Um, I wasn't a stud, that I, as far as I know. Um, but yeah, I said no to all of them. And I also didn't dance at all the whole time, even though fun, rad songs were played, fast-paced songs like uh, You're Unbelievable by uh, EMF and um, some cool rock songs, fast rock songs you could dance to and uh, some good Depeche Mode. It's a little hard to dance to, but fun anyway. Um, <clears throat> so that was my first dance, basically a failure. But and, and I felt really uncomfortable there. I just felt like I'm at a dance. I don't... I do not feel comfortable getting out on that floor. Um, I feel like I would be so self-conscious, but I was also self-conscious of the fact that I was sitting there not dancing uh, because you're at a dance. But then it turned out a lot of people were standing around da not dancing, but they were talking to friends, and it was a no-win situation for painfully shy Jared. A no-win situation. And the next week came along, and, and I hung out, and we did some D&D, &D, and fairly soon into this, a couple weeks in, I... I, I started actually working for the Best Friends Thrift Store. Hope was the lady who was running it after Michael disappeared from it. Uh, Hope was this goddess, pagan goddess type woman. I don't know if she really was a pagan. She's just a great, neat lady with a lot of gravitas um, and very quirky uh, behavior and interactions. Very British. Um, she had me take over uh, running the store in the evening because she didn't want to work all hours anymore. And so I did, you know, from about four or five on till about eight or nine when we closed, I'd run the store. But at the back of the thrift store, there was basically a sitting room with a bunch of couches and chairs and some tables. There was even a little mini fridge um, and some storage and stuff. And so I run the store. I ran the store. It was great. Um, and soon, around the same time that I started running the store, I went to my next home dance after a home game. And um, this one was different. So I'd gotten a little bit of uh, money in my pocket, which was kind of great, um, you know, from working a little bit. Although it was not much work because my friends were there all the time and we played D&D till all hours. I'd lock the store up and we'd play D&D in the back. We might have played D&D while it was still open sometimes. I don't know. I don't know. Uh, we ate a lot of Little Debbies, um, played a lot of D&D, and had some fun times, and I gained a reputation for loving dwarves, because I always love dwarves uh, as characters. I think they're great. I reson they resonate with me. And uh, Byron always played rogues or thieves or assassins, and Spencer always played a magic user of some kind, and um, Dean played a fighter usually, like a monk, I think, if I remember right. Anyway... Um, it was, it was a really fun, fun time. Uh, we had a lot of fun. We listened to music. We had done a bonfire by this time. So by the second dance, I was more comfortable, a little bit more at least. Still very shy. I hadn't even asked a girl out at all, yet. Uh, I'd been there for at least a month, I think. And, uh, that was that. And so we go to the dance again after, after the football game and after I was standing next to the pep band because they were awesome and had a lot of fun. And, um, I'm just sitting there again. And you know what? A girl comes up and asks me to dance. You know what I said, guys? You know what I said? I said, ah, I don't really dance. Because, I, you know, I chickened out like I typically was doing at that time. Uh, very scared. Very scared of putting my foot wrong. Scared of looking like a fool. Um, scared of not knowing what I was doing because I didn't know what I was doing. But Byron came up to me and said, dude, you, you got you to gotta get off your butt. You got to dance. Bungalow. I'm like, I don't even know what bungalow means, man. But luckily for him, and later me, a fast song came on. And he's like, this is Bungalow. 
and he basically started to flail and leap about the 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 gym, um, like at, at fairly reckless speed and movement, uh, just to the rhythm, certainly to the rhythm of the song. But it was basically flaily dancing, um, just not apologizing for yourself, demanding that you have space and just going for it and being getting getting in tune with the wild inside of you. You know what I'm saying? Uh, and that that was kind of cool. I'm like, oh man, I don't. That's not for me, but that's cool of him to to, to feel gutsy enough to do that. And he's like, no, next time, next time you're coming, you're you're bungling with me. And a couple slow songs later. Um, you're unbelievable by EMF comes on and he's like, now, Jared, let's go bungalow. And I'm like, no. And the other guys are out there boogieing down. I see Chris just flaying with his arms out. Chris Lister, he's, he's a fun guy. And I, I think Van Hag might've, or Chris Lister, Chris Mazda might've been there. Um, and a couple of other folks. Um, and it was tempting guys. It was tempting. He was kind of pulling on me, not physically, but insistently with his words. Come on, Jared, get up. Let's go. It's time. Let's go. Um, bungalow, bungalow, man, bungalow. He went and did a circuit and he came back and said, come on, man, bungalow. And I'm like, I finally got up. I don't know what went through my head. I don't know the decision making, the dialogue that did it, but I'm like, fine, I'll do it. Here we go. And I think part of it was if I don't do this now, if I don't get up, if I don't, you know, break, break out of this a little bit, just, just a little bit right now, am I going to be this way my, my whole life? I got to take control of this, right? I mean, I, I, I got to find who I am. You know, I got to find out if this is really me. All that stuff, you know, all in one, you know, a couple of milliseconds or, or something. And so I jumped up and I went for it. And it was hard at the start. I kind of bounced on the balls of my feet and flailed my arms a little bit in one place. He's like, no, bungalow. And the other guys were saw me and like, yeah, let's go. And so um, their motivation, their momentum, their enthusiasm carried me. And I began to bungalow. I didn't go as crazy as them that time, but I definitely went crazier than I'd ever gone in my life. I, at, at the end of it, I was not caring how people saw me. I was just in tune with, this is fun. My breath is coming fast. The music is strong. The music is loud. And I'm moving to that beat. And uh, after that dance, I was not fully transformed, but I was somewhat transformed. I had broken the hardest parts of the shell that I had allowed to encase me. The shells of fear, the shell that was made of fear, of uh, self-consciousness, of um, the worst case scenario worry. I just said, forget it for this moment. I'm going to just go. I'm going to do something that's crazy and not necessarily even in my nature, but I'm still going to do it. Um, I'm not going to let my worry about what other people think or how other people see me determine my actions. And that was the beginning of me realizing my whole life I have pushed back against people trying to control my actions. But in a subtle way, in a very destructive way, I was allowing my belief about what other people what I thought other people were seeing and thinking about me to control my actions. And so that was a spectacular and uh, that, that was, it was a turning point for me. Um, again, that thickest part of my painfully shy shell was broken and to never come back. Um, and that continued uh, development happened through more dances, through me finally uh, asking a couple of girls on dates, 
finally asking Claudia, the German exchange student there in, in Kanab, at Kanab High School, on a date and ending up dating her for several months until she returned to Germany. Um, and uh, that was a very special experience. Uh, I have a very tender place in my heart for her. Um, because she was she was sweet and kind and good and, and taught me the ways of interacting with a female who was nice, you know, talking and making jokes and making sure there's respect. Uh, she was great. She was very good that way. And she was very respectful of herself and of me. And so that that's always been, been a good start to my relationships. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I can trace that the beginning of me coming out of the shell entirely and being able to be comfortable with myself and my own skin in any situation. Um, to that moment where I decided I would bungalow with, with my buds on a dark dance floor in Kanab High School. Uh, and so if you've seen me, if you've seen me teach, if you've seen me be in public situations, you see that I'm comfortable everywhere I go. Um, and that's a deliberate decision I've made. And that's who I am today, and I'm still developing and getting better and better at that. But it all started really with that moment. So thanks, friends. Thank you guys for helping me get out of that painfully shy shell uh, and uh, into on the road to uh, the true me, the me that I, uh, I love the most, which is me today. So that's my story about the pulp. That's my first post-cult story coming out of my painfully shy shell. That's all we're going to talk about today. Next week... Uh, we'll take a probably a shorter episode and talk about what the religion itself was uh, throughout the years, as far as I know, and, and according to the religion that I have, or that, that I studied. Um, I'll be quoting some uh, information from um, associates who I've been able to reconnect with who were in the cult uh, for years. Um, and that's next episode, so tune in then. Until then, make sure you tell your friends, tell your enemies, tell your family for sure. Review this this podcast and uh, don't start any cults, guys. Don't do it. Don't start any cults. They're generally really bad, and I don't recommend them. But do eat pie. Thanks, guys. Tune in next time.